0: these poetic words, child of my love, fear not the unknown morrow, dread not the new demand life makes of thee, thy ignorance doth hold no cause for sorrow since what thou knowest not is known to me, thou canst not see today the hidden meaning of my command, but thou the light shalt gain. Walk on in faith, upon my promise leaning, and as thou goest, all shall be made plain. One step thou seest, then go forward boldly. One step is far enough for faith to see. Take that, and thy next duty shall be told thee, for step by step thy Lord is leading thee. Stand not in fear thy adversaries counting. Dare every peril save to disobey. Thou shalt march on, all obstacles surmounting, for I the strong will open up the way. Wherefore go gladly to the task assigned thee, having my promise, needing nothing more, than just to know where'er the future find thee, in all thy journeyings I go before. And I have a copy of this, which can, I I don't know whether you can Xerox things here, but if anyone wants a copy of that, maybe there's a way to do it. My topic now is do the next thing. Nothing, let nothing trouble you, nothing frighten you. All things pass away, God never changes. That's some anonymous poet. I didn't write that myself. Let nothing trouble you, nothing frighten you. All things pass away. God never changes. And Jesus' own words to his disciples were let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Is there someone here this morning who is allowing your heart to be troubled? Undoubtedly, there are a few of you out there. But listen to the words. Let nothing trouble you, nothing frighten you. And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Remember that he loves you with an everlasting love. And he's trying to teach you day by day to trust him. It says in 1 Peter 4:1. Be content. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. And the attitude is the way in which Christ suffered. Philippians 2, 1-5 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any tenderness and compassion, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others." And I think that's a wonderful passage for any of you who may be dealing with some person who is very hard to get along with. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many of you, (laughs) but that passage from Philippians 2, 1 to 5 should calm and quiet and encourage you. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And probably many of you have a difficult person in your life, and you just wish, you really would never want to say that you'd like to get rid of that person, but she or he is very difficult to get along with, and you just wish that they were no longer there. Well, trust God to show you what he wants you to do. I think of that little girl, Fanny Crosby, probably most of you know who Fanny Crosby was. She was a little girl back in the 1800s, who, by a doctor's mistake, became blind when she was six weeks old. And when she was nine years old, she wrote this poem. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't, to weep and sigh Because I'm blind, I cannot, and I won't. Nine years old, imagine that. Well, I had a letter from a prisoner who was listening to my radio program when I read that letter, read Fanny Crosby's. And this is what he said. The Bible says that we are to choose an attitude. He said, is that hypocritical? No, he said, I really believe that it is obedience to God. And so he sort of paraphrased what Fanny Crosby had written. And he wrote, oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and cry because I'm chained, I cannot. And I won't. (laughs) Now, you know, you can choose an attitude, a proper attitude. It's very easy to choose a bad one. Try choosing a good one. Jesus always did the will of his Father, even when he was hanging on the cross. He knew that he was doing the will of his Father. He was obedient as he was growing up, obedient to his earthly parents. And we can only assume that he must have spent many many years, I think we can say, in the carpentry shop with his earthly husband, his earthly father. We don't know exactly what he did for those years, but it's pretty much taken for granted that Joseph was a carpenter and would have been teaching his son his son, of course, being the son of God, how to do carpentry. And Jesus said, speaking of his father, my meat is to do thy will. My meat is to do thy will. There's nothing I want more than to do your will, my father. And to think of the Lord Jesus as coming here to earth to live and die with us, and he was able to talk about his will, offering his will to God. Now, for those of you who are wondering, when's she gonna give us a number here? Well, (laughs) I'll give you number one. All of the rest of that was by way of introduction. Number one is the cost. Jesus Christ became a baby, a tiny, helpless baby. Just think of the Lord of the universe, the hands that made the stars, becoming a helpless, tiny little baby born of Mary. And so as a man, he, had to, he was tired. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He needed quietness. And we read about Jesus having to get away by himself in order to have quietness. And many of the times when he went to find quietness, he would find the people were already there waiting for him. So it was anything but quietness. But he gave himself unstintingly to those who needed him and wanted him. He ate, slept, needed quietness. And I think it's a lovely thing to realize that he allowed other people to do things for him. I think primarily of that lovely home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It must have been a very refreshing place for the Lord Jesus to be able to go to every now and then. And he was greatly blessed by them. When he needed quietness, he could make his way to that home in Bethany. The time came when he allowed others to do things for him. He was offered... I can't remember what it was. He was hanging on the cross and he was given a piece of a sponge in which there was very sour wine. And he took that. He said, my meat is to do the will of my Father. And as he hung on the cross, he knew that this was part of the Father's will. Just imagine how staggering a thing that was. That the will of the Father who loved the Son was that he should be nailed to a cross and be totally helpless. He said, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus did not think of himself as above everybody else. He thought of himself as a simple servant And when you and I get kind of stuck on ourselves and we think we've done something really wonderful and we can do something that somebody else can't do, let's just remember all of us are meant to be servants. Being given the work that God has given to us to do as servants and as women, most of us serve in many, many different ways. And it's just part of what it means to love the Lord and to trust him. Viktor Frankl... A man, he was uh, European, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And the book was actually written when he was in the death camp. And he tells this story. He said, there was great joy at our work site when we had permission to warm ourselves for a few minutes. After two hours of work in bitter frost, in front of a little stove, which was fed with twigs and scraps of wood. Always some foreman took great pleasure in taking this comfort." So the foreman who were in charge of these prisoners would sometimes take away the one very small comfort that they had. But he says, I remember how one day a foreman secretly gave me a piece of bread, which I knew he must have saved from his breakfast ration. It was far more than the small piece of bread which moved me to tears at that time. It was the human something which made which this man also gave to me the word and the look which accompanied the gift. Now think of that. A foreman, he was one of those who was the guard one of the guards in those terrible death camps. And he turns out to be a godly man, apparently. Someone who was willing to give up his own ration, that one piece of bread that he saved from his breakfast ration. But Frankel says it was far more than the small piece of bread which moved me to tears. It was the human something which this man also gave to me, the word and the look which accompanied the gift. Earlier this morning, I had you read Philippians 2, 5 to 8, and I want to read that again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. If we were to just remember those four words, made himself nothing, we wouldn't be able to say, look who I am. How completely the Lord Jesus was able to identify himself with people, with ordinary people. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and what is the nature of a servant, but just somebody who's supposed to be there to help other people. Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He was willing to be humbled and to become obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that greatly tested Scottish man by the name of Samuel Rutherford, who was in prison for years and years back in the 1600s, he wrote this, For some, it is down crosses and up umbrellas But I am persuaded that we must take heaven with the wind and the rain in our faces. For those of you who like to make notes on things, I'll give this to you again. For some, it is down crosses and up umbrellas. In other words, we're going to get rid of the crosses and we're going to put the umbrella up because it's much more comfortable that way. But I am persuaded that we must take heaven with the wind and the rain in our faces. In other words, remember that there are some hard things in the world, and we must take heaven with the wind and the rain in our faces. Who of us has not experienced something along those lines, something that you would not have chosen if God had given you the choice? And then in Ephesians 4.23, it tells us that we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.23. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. I don't know anybody in this room, so I don't know anything about what kind of an attitude you have. But there may be some of you who know somebody else's attitude. But let's all think about what it means to be made new in the attitude of our minds in order that we may be able to put on the new self, created to be like God. Do you want to be like God? I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like God. I want to be a godly woman. But I'm still working at it. I still have a long way to go. But he has created us to be like God in true righteousness, and holiness oh lord quickly bring that day when we are brought into true righteousness and holiness so that was that was number 1 the cost and now number 2 is the work given i talked earlier this morning about mothering putting yourself at the disposal of your children and it's work which is given. And it is wonderful work. When I think of the family that I grew up in, I think what a, wonderful, what a wonderful thing it was that there were six of us children. And I'm just thrilled that my daughter has eight children. But the Lord only gave me one. And of course, I had hoped. I had high hopes for having a large family. But God knows exactly what he's doing. And God knew that he was going to give me a kind of work which would not work very well if I had a whole house full of children. So I had many different opportunities in the 11 years that I was a missionary in Ecuador where I was able to offer myself to other people who needed me, people who had never heard the gospel. And it was a tremendous privilege that I had to live for those 11 years. first year... Of course, I had to learn Spanish, which is the national language of Ecuador. And then when the six months' worth of Spanish studies were up, then I moved to the western jungle where there were two British women who had been toiling away trying to learn the language of the Colorado Indians. And they had never gotten very far along with that because they had not had linguistic training that I had had. But it was a wonderful thing to have the privilege of going and beginning to reduce the language to writing so that other people could carry it on later on. It's a long story of what happened to that. All the work that I had done actually went down the drain. And it was one of those occasions where you just look up to the Lord and say, Lord, why? And the Lord's answer is, trust me. I know what I'm doing. So a whole year's work down the drain Does God know what he's doing? I don't know who in this audience may have had a similar situation of some sort. You wonder why something that you worked very hard on came to nothing. Remember, God never wastes anyone. As a wife, when finally Jim Elliott got around to asking me to marry him, I had waited five and a half years for that because he had told me just before I graduated from Wheaton College, that he loved me, but he said, as far as I know, God wants me to remain single, perhaps for the rest of my life. (laughs) So that was a challenge, (laughs) and there wasn't anything I could do about it. I loved him tremendously, and I thought he was the greatest guy in the whole world, and he was only, he was a year behind me, so I was graduating, and the chances of our seeing each other again seemed to be nothing. But... God and his mercy brought us together, but it was only two two years and three months when he died. So as a wife, God has seen to it that I have been subordinate to three very, very different men. And I've had to learn lessons very differently with each one. The time with Jim, I've told you about then when Ad Leach, came along, he was a wonderful man, and he died of cancer after four and a half years. And as you saw, as far as I know, Lars is still up here, I mean he's still (laughs) alive, but I don't know exactly where he is right at this moment. But I know that I'm also talking to many single women who are undoubtedly here this morning And you're wondering if I'm ever going to say anything about singleness. Well, yes, I have a number of things that I do want to say about singleness. I do believe that it is a gift. And it is not necessarily a gift that you would ask for. I thought, very likely, I was going to be single for the rest of my life. And God had other plans. Can you imagine, you single women, how many other single women have said to me, but I don't understand why God gave you three husbands when he's never even given me a date. (laughs) What can I say to that? I have absolutely nothing to say. It's God who makes those choices. But what a blessing it has been for me to be a wife to three very different men because I have had to learn... Very different things from each one of them. And those of you who are wives and think that you're, the row that you have to hoe is kind of tough and your husband, you wish your husband would do what so-and-so's husband does for her, uh, just remember God knows what he's doing. This is where he puts you. And he wants you to love him, to trust him, and to praise him. Remember that a wife is to be subordinate. And I was talking one time in Massachusetts, not very far from where I live, I was talking about wives loving their husbands, and I get piles and piles of letters from people who listen to my radio broadcast. It's just amazing to me what horror stories come in that radio mail. These people are... Godly people, presumably, they are Christians, and yet I hear story after story of chaos in so-called Christian homes. Well, I was speaking one day, as I said, in Massachusetts. I don't remember what the topic was that I was talking about, but one woman who sat there through that morning was just livid about what I was talking about. And she went out of that place just furious because she and her husband had had 30 years of absolutely miserable uh, life and they had just about made up their mind. I guess they had made up their minds that they were going to split. And so she hardly heard anything else that I said other than, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I did say that. But where did I get that? I didn't make that up, that's in the Bible. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because they're so wonderful, they're so beautiful, they're so brilliant. Is that what it says? No. (laughs) Doesn't say anything like that. It just says, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, That's what it says. how many wives are willing for that? Anyway, this woman got in her car and was just roaring down the highway, just furious at everything that Elizabeth Elliot had said, thinking to herself, if Elizabeth Elliot knew what kind of a guy I've had to live with for 33 years, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a letter from her later. She said, Elizabeth, before I got home, something had changed in my heart. And she said, I pulled the car into the driveway. I went into the house. And there he was, just like a couch potato, sitting on the sofa, gazing at the tube. She said, "I I was so sick and tired of that television stuff. But she said, this time, I walked in, and I said, honey, may I speak to you a moment? And she said, for the first time in our married life, He turned off the TV. Well, she said, I didn't know what to say. (laughs) But finally, she said, I love you. And I want to be the kind of a wife that God wants me to be. And she said, it was a very short time before we were in each other's arms. Well, I had a letter from her later telling me that. (laughs) everything had changed completely in her life and it was a wonderful letter and then about three more years later not too long ago that my husband and I happened to go to the to a church where she turned up well I had never seen this lady I mean I she had been in the audience but I had never seen seen her when she told me had told me the story but on this occasion, this very well-dressed, very beautiful woman who looked to be in her 50s or 60s, she came up to me and she said, Elizabeth, I am Mrs. G. Well, I had told the story of this lady on my radio broadcast and I had just named her Mrs. G. But I had never seen her before. And she just she looked up at me, and she was very short about like this, and she looked up at me and she said, Elizabeth, I can't tell you how totally transformed our life has become since I made the decision to submit to my husband. You wives, think about it. Ponder it. If there's something you need to do to change your attitude towards your husband, ask the Lord to give you grace. Now, for those of you who are singles, for one thing, it's a wonderful thing to be a single woman. Very few single women would agree with that. I was single for quite a long time, I thought. Seemed like a long time. But when I think of the people who have so greatly influenced my own life, I think of people like Amy Carmichael, Mom Cunningham, Catherine Morgan, this long list of people that I read read to you before. And those women were people who did things for God that they could never have done if it had not been for their being single. And so my advice to you who are single and just hoping against hope that you're never going to have to be single for the rest of your life, I want to read to you from something that Janet Erskine Stewart wrote in a book called Prayer in Faith. She says, what is good for us is sowing in tears. It is good that we should have to submit to what we do not understand. It teaches us the laws of faith and hope. It is good that we should have to do what we should rather not, in circumstances not of our choice. It is good that there should always be something to prick us on, something to remind us that we are in an enemy's country and we belong to a marching column. It is good that every creature we lean upon should fail or disappoint us. And if I can put in a parenthesis here, is there a husband who has not failed or disappointed his wife? He's a man. He's fallible. Of course. And what are we? We're women. We're fallible. So it is good to remember that we belong in a marching column. It is good that every creature we lean upon should fail or disappoint us. It is good that we should meet with checks and failures in what we undertake to keep us humble and prayerful. All these things, she writes, belong to sewing, in tears." A woman by the name of Florence Allshorn was a single woman. And she went to Africa to become the headmistress of a girl's school. And she was so excited to have that wonderful privilege. But it wasn't very long after she got there that she realized why so many other women from England had come and gone. Because there was one crotchety old woman in the tribe who just seemed to make life absolutely miserable for her. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't a a tribal woman. It was another Christian woman older than than, than this lady. And she was apparently responsible for getting rid of all the other women who had come out from England. One after the other, they had come out. They had tried to work harmoniously with this woman and found it absolutely impossible, and so they had gone back home. So when Florence Alshorn heard the story of these women having to leave, she made up her mind, if God wants me to go there to Africa and to work with or under that woman, he is going to have to give me grace. She cried her eyes out, She talked to this man, to this woman. She did everything she could to try to appease her and try to show her, I'm just here to help you. Show me what you want me to do. She said this woman would go sometimes for two or three days without saying a word to me or to anybody else. And she was like a dictator and she wanted everything to go her way and she didn't want anybody to interfere with anything. And so Florence Allsorn, had to put her face before the Lord, put her face on the ground almost. And she said one day she was sitting on the little veranda of the house where she lived with this woman. She said, I was just crying and crying and crying. And I just said, Lord, only you can change this situation. And because she prayed, and seemed to get nowhere with the older woman. She said, I began to notice that the children that I was teaching began to do little sweet things that they had never done before. In other words, it was just the little sweet things that Florence Alsorn herself was giving to these little children that made them, in turn, want to do something for somebody else. And she said, The whole atmosphere changed among the little children. She said, one day I was sitting on the porch and an old black woman came up and sat down beside me. She said, I was still crying my eyes out over this older woman. And when this woman of one of these native women came and sat down, she didn't say anything at all to Florence for a while. And finally she said, I've seen them come, and I've seen them go. And I have never seen this situation redeemed. And it was at that point that she made up her mind, Florence Allsworth made up her mind, that she was going to make sure that there would be a change. And it was as she saw the little children being sweet to each other that she began to understand that God was allowing her to suffer under this older woman in order that she, in turn, might be a blessing to these children. There may be somebody here in this room today who is in a very difficult situation with somebody who seems impossible to get along with. There is nothing impossible. Are you moody? Do you respond with a calm, loving, unselfish silence? Sometimes the Lord comes and knocks. And we have to say, come in, Lord. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and firm conviction that God's will governs all. That's a quotation from somebody, I don't know. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and firm conviction that God's will governs all. Now, number three, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 2, 12 to 18 says, It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. I want to ask you, are we willing to be sacrificed off an offering on the sacrifice and the service coming for your faith? The Lord knows what he needs to do. And another word from Janet Erskine-Stewart, if we do not understand and cannot make up our minds and have no courage to undertake or to bear, the remedy will be, to humble ourselves, to lay our heads in the dust before God, and to become the servants of others, then all will become clear as if by a newly created light, possible as if by a miracle. Let this mind be in you. Be willing, in other words, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. May I ask you to scour your heart this morning. Ask the Lord if you need to be made willing in the attitude of your mind. Perhaps some difficult person that you have to work with, perhaps your husband, perhaps the fact that you are single and you have as difficult a situation as Florence Alsorn. I don't know, but God knows exactly what it is. And God knows what you need. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not think it was something to be grasped at, but he made himself nothing. Are you ready for that? When I lived with the Alka Indians, I felt like nothing, because I was the stupidest person they had ever met in their lives. They could not imagine why I couldn't catch fish with my hands. My daughter learned it. She's three years old. She caught fish with her hands. I had no idea how to plant manioc. I didn't know how to make chicha. I didn't know how to keep my fire from going out. And they would laugh their heads off. So let this mind be willing to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And I kept trying to get the Indians to understand, I want you to teach me. I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. Let this mind be in you." And I want to close with a wonderful thing from, it's a poem, from an old English parsonage down by the sea. And I happened to come upon this after my mother died. I found it in her little red notebook that was just full of all sorts of interesting things. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And all through the hours, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Moment by moment. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, child of the king, trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who laid it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all resultings. Do the next thing. Looking to Jesus, ever serener, Working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, say it with me, do the next thing. God bless you.